1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash
0: loss. Hello, I'm Larry Cohen, and you're listening to Sorry Partner.
3: Welcome to Sorry Partner, a weekly podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players, brought to you by bridge partners and friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program, we talk with American champion, author and teacher, Larry Cohen, about the arc of his career from being a youngster, too small to hold all the cards, to international recognition as one of the most influential people in the game, as well as hearing his top tip for developing players. But first, let's kibitz. Hi, partner. Hi,
2: partner. How are you, Catherine? I'm great, Jocelyn. How are you? Well, I'm good. I think I'm in a bit of the doghouse with my daughter, though, because she's actually going to be flying for the first time by herself. She's 17 and she's arriving, I realized, in the middle of a bridge game. That I'm supposed to be playing in with a partner that I absolutely do not want to cancel on. So <laughs> I told her she can take a cab home from the airport and she's <laughs> appalled. And I'm thinking that, you know, does that mean that I get the worst mother of the year award? I don't know, but I am feeling a bit bad, but not maybe bad enough to to cancel. <laughs> I mean, it's good for her. She needs to develop. Some independence, I think. (laughs) I don't quite know where to start
3: with this. (laughs) Has she taken taxis before
2: by herself? Oh, absolutely. That's why I thought it would be absolutely no problem. My husband's taking her to look at colleges. So, I mean, the independence is sort of a necessity if she's going to be going to colleges, but then he's going to be staying and he won't be traveling back with her because he has some meetings. So, she's coming back by herself. It'll be just an hour later at the most when I get home. I just think that she can take a cab home and let herself in. It sounds like the issue is not the cab. The
3: issue is (laughs) she'd like to think that
2: you'd set aside your bridge game to prioritize her arrival. Well, I just can't help it. I did not schedule this plane flight of hers. And (laughs) had I done so, no, I appreciate my husband's doing that, but had I done so, I would have been careful not to have her arriving in the middle of my game. Right. Well, look, you know, life lessons all around. (laughs) (laughs) That may be. In any event, I did get a funny letter that I was wondering if you might want me to read. I would love you to read. Okay. Well, this is from David in San Francisco. Hi, Jocelyn. At a recent sectional tournament, opening lead was made against a six-no-Trump contract. As Dummy came down, the declarer clutched his chest and fell off his chair, keeping his hand covered. Dummy sprang to her feet and shouted, call 911. Declarer reseated himself and exclaimed, let me play the hand first dummy glared pointed her (laughs) finger at declare and snarled okay but you better make it (laughs) which sort of dovetails with my story it's like there is no higher priority you could be having a heart attack but you need to play bridge (laughs) were they okay oh i don't know actually i should have i should (laughs) have asked (laughs) but but david i do know is a doctor so i I could ask him. I could follow up. Maybe I don't want to know. <laughs> oh, gosh. I'd like to know, first of all, how did he, did he make the six no Trump contract? <laughs> and did he go to the hospital and get checked out and was fine? That was, would both be good things to know, I'm sure. <laughs>
3: yeah, Priorities are such a thing. I, I had a British partner a while ago who confessed to me that she'd once forgotten to pick up her kids from <laughs> school because... <laughs> Because she was playing bridge, which just cracked me
2: up. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's very funny. When I first, When I first was playing in the club, I knew that there was a rule that you had to have your phone off. But I thought, I can't have my phone off if my kids need me. What if someone calls me about my kid? And then I learned, no, there's no exemption. There's no, you know, you don't get any kind of exemption. If you're playing in the bridge club, you need to have your phone off so I turned my phone off. No problem. (laughs) (laughs) If you've got a funny story about leaving your children to play bridge, forgetting your children to generally being a neglectful parent and playing bridge or medical emergencies at the bridge table, please send it to us at sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a voice message. The link is in the show notes.
3: Coming up next, our interview with Larry Cohen.
2: Larry Cohen learned to play bridge sitting atop a phone book because he was too short to see over the table. He is now a giant of the game, having won 25 national championships. He is also a two-time winner of the Cavendish Invitational Pairs, Winner of the nineteen ninety nine Cap Gemini World Top Sixteen Pairs Tournament in The Hague, silver medalist at the nineteen ninety eight World Pairs Championships, and bronze medalist in the two thousand Olympiad Teams. In two thousand two, the ACBL named him Player of the Year, and in twenty eleven named him Honorary Member of the Year. In twenty twenty, In his first year of eligibility, he was elected to the ACBL Hall of Fame. We began where it all started with his
0: grandparents who taught him to play. In the 1960s, my grandparents were indeed learning bridge. And they taught my brother and they taught me. And we were the foursome and I was six years old. And I remember it very well. It's one of my earliest memories in life, sitting there with them. I would sit on a phone book because I was so short. And I couldn't hold all 13 cards in my hand, but I absolutely loved it. Every Monday, we would play bridge after I finished first grade or whatever it was. And uh, I just absolutely loved it.
3: I read that you then started playing duplicate. How did you end up going to the club? You were
0: how old? I was 14, and a few of my friends who played bridge had heard about such a thing. And I guess we must have gotten a ride from one of our parents. And I walked in and I knew how to play bridge, sort of, but I didn't know what duplicate was or anything. So (laughs) it was just kind of strange.
3: So you went along there with friends. And do you remember what happened?
0: Yeah, I remember the first session I I was playing with another 14-year-old. and I remember we came in second place. We got master points and the director wrote out the slip back then. There was, it wasn't on a computer and he handed me the little slip that said I had won like one third of a master point and I was hooked. Uh, <laughs> how, how could you not be?
3: You have a particular interest in card play. I understand that you really enjoyed reading Winning Declare a Play by Dorothy Truscott. Was that an almost immediate thing where you connected with that aspect of the game?
0: I think it was because I remember that year our family took a long car ride, I think from New York to Florida, and I got my hands on that book, Winning Declarer Play, and I just read it for the whole trip, and I was fascinated by it. It, It's the part of the game that I love so much where you start to see something like throwing someone in and avoiding a finesse and all those fun things, and I was just so excited about it.
3: Is that a fascination that continues to this day?
0: That's a good question. Yes, it does. And for me, the best part of bridge is that like sweet spot of not beginner beginner when you have to memorize like what one heart two arts means, but after you've played like a year or two and you start to see the beauty of the card play especially and the defense a little bit and understand all the different ways the cards can be played out. To me, that's the best part of bridge, and that's why I love teaching that part of bridge. I, I don't think it's fun to defend against Jeff Mextoroth, and he's in three-no Trump, and he's running the clubs, and I have to discard what to throw, or I'm going to get squeeze end played. For me, that's not fun. But the stuff in winning declarer play and that level of bridge, the intermediate level, is to me the best part of bridge.
2: And so when was it that you realized that there was something special there, that you and Bridge were made for each other?
0: I think it was after I'd been playing Duplicate Bridge about a year, and I realized that I was getting pretty good at it. I mean, I was doing well. You know, first you win some club games, then you win a sectional, then you win a regional. Uh, the better players started to ask me to be their partner. And I said, hey, I'm I'm pretty good at this. And it was I was hooked. I was all I could do was think bridge, eat bridge, sleep bridge. I was so addicted, I just couldn't wait for the next time I could play bridge. I just it consumed my life, which wasn't necessarily a great thing for my social life, but um <laughs> what could you do? Bridge took priority.
2: Did you not meet friends uh your own age through Bridge in those days?
0: I, I did, but not many people played Bridge. So yeah, there were a few guys I played Bridge with and I had a girlfriend when I was 14 and it probably should have been really serious but I kind of screwed up the whole thing to, to play bridge <laughs> and kind of ruined my relationship.
2: She didn't want to play?
0: No, she wasn't a bridge player and I don't think she understood that I'd rather go to the local duplicate game at night instead of taking her to a movie or something.
3: What about your social circle now? Are they mostly bridge
0: players? Not really. I honestly I don't really want to be socializing and talking bridge like my friends i mean a lot of them are bridge players but they know that i don't really want to go to a dinner and and hear you holds as i call them all night you know you're at least king fifth king queen fourth queen <laughs> and one too little it goes three times or what would you do i mean i don't want to be bothered <laughs> with that i do so much bridge for my living a uh, writing teaching reading that when I'm at dinner, I don't really want to talk about bridge. So my friends know that they really shouldn't be talking about bridge with me.
3: You retired from high-level competition in 2009. Did you completely reorganize how you think about the game in terms of the place it has in your life?
0: Yeah, I pretty much did. I mean, the retirement was kind of building up for years. I would say right around maybe 2000 is when I started to realize, hey, I don't enjoy this. I stopped enjoying the game and it's a shame that there's a, a famous Charles Gorin quote. I don't know if you've heard of him. it's before your time. But he said something like, the bridge should be played for enjoyment and the moment you're not enjoying it, it's time to give up. And what I found was I was going to these tournaments and I was getting paid a lot of money because that's the way it works in America. You play on a team and somebody's paying the other players. And I found that to be a lot of stress, a lot of pressure. I would go to the tournament. I didn't eat well. I didn't sleep well. I would fret over it if I made a mistake, which is inevitable. And I didn't enjoy that. So unless I really had to have the money, I started to say to myself, why am I going to do this? Why am I going to fly to another City and go into some hotel and spend my whole day in a ballroom if I'm not enjoying it. So it's weird. The game I used to love and be addicted to and enjoy started to be not enjoyable. So it really was just a question of how to get out. I didn't want to screw my partner because he made his living from this. David Berkowitz and I were one of the top partnerships, and we were getting good money. And if I left. David would be out of a living. So really, I had to find a way that I could retire, but not have David lose his income. And thankfully, eventually something came along to to get me out.
3: By that, do you mean another partner for him?
0: Yes. Alan Sontag needed a partner and he's one of the greats of the game. And T and David were friendly and they both played a strong club system. So I kind of said, Alan, I want to get out would you play with David if I leave? And I left my marriage with David and he started a new one. That's kind of what top bridge partnerships are like. They're like marriages. Do you think that a
3: part of the reason that you stopped enjoying it so much was about control? That once you were playing for other people on a team, there was an external expectation that it was no longer just about your personal mastery of the situation. You are now accountable to someone else. Whereas Up until that point, it had been about your skill and your own pleasure in your game.
0: You sound like a psychologist. That's a good in-depth way to look at it. Maybe something like that, because when I played in pair games, I didn't feel as much stress. Like when it was just David and me and we'd be in the blue ribbon pairs, I kind of sort of enjoyed that or at least a little bit. But once we went to the team event, and the sponsor was paying me big money, that's when I just didn't enjoy it. It was too much stress for me, which is silly because all the top players, they make a mistake or two, and I I didn't make that many. So in retrospect, it's kind of dumb. Maybe I needed a psychologist.
2: (laughs) Did you consider retiring completely from anything related to bridge, or were you still very much enjoying the teaching and the writing?
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, not, not at all. In fact, and I thank my wife for that. We've been married over 20 years and I've been teaching throughout and little by little, the teaching side of it and the writing side of it was starting to flourish. And the teaching I was able to do with my wife, we travel all over the world uh, on cruise ships to clubs. And I kind of was enjoying the teaching. So when I quit playing, I knew that it would be to make my living from the teaching and the writing, which I did enjoy at that time. And thankfully, I still enjoy. In fact, I love it. I love teaching, especially in front of a big class and having the interaction. So I'm very fortunate that I'm still in Bridge, just in a different way. Do you
3: understand why your students struggle with certain concepts when they must be so obvious
0: to you? Absolutely. That's such a uh, an insightful question. I, I think, and I hope that's what makes me a, a popular and successful teacher, is that I do understand. I, I realize that I can't just say blah, 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 and they'll get it. it. It's quite the opposite. It's very difficult to learn this game, and I completely understand that. So I'm very patient. I know that It's not going to be easy to get these things that I have to say it 10 times. They have to see it 10 times. They have to study it and they'll still make mistakes. And I'm very, I understand that. Hey, you should see me when I try to learn something new on the computer. I don't just, or learn some Spanish, which I try to learn. I learn a word and then a week later, I forget the word. So I certainly understand.
3: Do you think then in a way, teaching bridge is like a spiritual practice where it requires a radical kind of empathy to be able to be present for your students?
0: Definitely. And let me say this, just because somebody is a good player doesn't mean they're a good teacher. Not at all. I've seen bad players who are great teachers and vice versa. And teaching is a skill that I've been learning and I'd like to think I improve every year. And definitely you have to really not so much understand bridge but understand people and the learning process and what they're trying to get out of it and and I'd say you know it's so important that they just enjoy it that they they enjoy the session and they want to keep going with the game I I love it when the light bulb goes off I love it when they realize okay this is difficult but I'll work on it and I'll understand it eventually so I'm definitely tuned into them and their psychology. And I just want them to have a good time, really. So I I don't get frustrated when they make a mistake. I've seen other bridge teachers, they get annoyed and they start getting nasty. They say, how could you not do that? I I would never do that. I I completely sympathize with, I've seen everything. And these are brilliant people. These are mayors of cities and physicists and doctors and and they could do what looks like the most stupid thing ever. And I've seen it a million times and I don't expect anything.
2: I'm wondering about the progression that you that you see and if there are types of students that you can categorize such that there's a familiar structure and progression that you can tend to expect. It may be accelerated in some and slower in others, or are people so different in their learning styles that there's not a category or, or two or three of types of learners of the game?
0: Yeah, well, I would say certainly one big dividing line is, yes, I played cards when I was young, or no, I didn't play cards until I retired. That's a big dividing line because the people who played some cards when they were a kid or a teenager or in college, they have so much of a better chance to get it than somebody who takes up the game late in life and just learned that a king beats a queen. So that right away tells me something if I know the person played when they were younger. Um, Also, I can tell with the eye contact right away, some students are just absorbing and taking notes and following. And other students, you know, they're just there because it's social and they might be looking around the room and just want to have a good time. So, you know, you can tell that they're not going to progress as well as the ones who are really there to learn.
3: Has your success surprised you?
0: Well, my success as a player came very gradually. So I guess there was no moment when you realize, hey, okay, I just won a national championship. That's exciting. Then you win a second one and a third one. So I don't know. I I don't think there was any moment. And same thing in teaching. It's just has gotten better every year. So I don't really think there's any one moment, but I I don't take it for granted. I'm so blessed and so fortunate just to have had this success. Selling a little or a lot? Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify.
1: Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
2: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
1: If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
3: But you said it happened gradually. It happened pretty quickly, your success as a player. Did you feel that sense almost straight away that you knew this was something that you were good at?
0: I guess so, because I was doing well. But I don't know. You just don't really, during it, I didn't really think much about it. I mean, I, I knew I was young and I knew I was doing well, like Life Master at 17. That wasn't the youngest ever, but I knew it was unusual. But I don't know. I don't really, I don't think I ever had a big head about it or really stopped to think, wow, I'm really good at this. So there was no wind
3: resistance in a sense. It was just a very natural fit for you.
0: Yeah, I just somehow fit right into it. And I, I was, well, I guess, see, see, one thing that can't be overstated enough is that you have to have a good partner. But I, I had incredible fortune through those early years with partners who were better than me, who I learned a lot from. And Possibly without that, this never never would have happened. I don't know. Maybe I never would have really gotten to the top of the game.
2: Can you talk about the the challenges that face a partnership, and what makes a particularly good partnership in your
0: view? Oh yeah, that's that's one of the topics that really interests me. I've written a lot about it. I I sometimes liken it to a marriage. I think that partnership in bridge is incredibly important. And especially for a serious partnership to people who want to be regular partners at a fairly decent level. It's not just about the bridge, it's about the relationship and the psychology. And you have to learn not just how you respond to Keycard Blackwood, but how you respond to a bad result or a bad session, and how are you going to discuss the deals, and how are you going to make a change to something, or th- that's what a partnership's all about. It's not just the technical bridge stuff. I think it's incredibly important. And I used to have rules with Marty Bergen, for example, not just our bridge notes, but our how to get along notes. We had like. Three pages of what we're allowed to say to each other, what we're allowed to do, what we can't say. And that was really important. We want to know more about that. What was on that list? Well, well, some of them are probably not fit for publication. I mean, like there were certain things he couldn't say. Like once I made some bid and he said after the session, Larry, were you, were you on drugs when you bid three hearts? And I took offense to that. I said, Marty, you can say, why did you bid three hearts? you can say, I thought you should have been three spades, but you can't say, were you on drugs? So so that got to be a, t- a taboo. And a little by little, we had more and more things that he, <laughs> he wasn't allowed to say, or I wasn't allowed to do. And not only that, we were roommates. And you know, when you're in your twenties and you go to bridge tournaments, you, you can't afford your own room. So we, I had to learn how to room with him, which was, oh my goodness.
2: At tournaments, but not at your Home. No, 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 not at home. Thank <laughs>
0: God. I couldn't. So, uh, tournaments was bad enough. But yeah, I had to learn how to room with them. And thankfully, as I got older, I was able to afford my own room.
3: So where is home for you? What feels like home?
0: Well, Florida now, even though I grew up in the New York area. Some of my friends joke that I don't need a house because I'm always traveling. But uh, yeah, I'm here uh, about half the time. And spend summer in the mountains out west, and then a lot of time on cruises and teaching.
3: And what do you love about your neighborhood, about your home?
0: Well, I love that I can play golf in the winter. That's kind of why I moved down here. It's it's funny, golf is my passion now, whereas bridge used to be my passion. Now it's golf. I'm no good at it, but I I don't care. See, if I hit a bad golf shot, I said, well, okay, that's not my living. It's okay. But whereas if I... Went down in four spades when I should have made it. That would infuriate me. Do
2: you see any similarities between golf and bridge?
0: Oh, yeah, all the time. And I make analogies when I teach. Because a lot of my students are also golfers. And one of the ones that helps me understand is, like, I'll go for golf lessons. And the instructor will say, Larry, you're swinging too fast. Slow down, slow down. And I'll slow down for that day. And then maybe the next day and then a week later, I'm swinging fast again. And I realize I'll tell my students, look, don't draw trump if you're going to have to trump something in the dummy. And for that day, yeah, they'll kind of pay attention to that. And then a week later, next thing you know, they draw a trump and they forget. It's like a rubber band. You always go back to your old habits. Same. Anytime I take a golf lesson, I a week or month later go back into my same habits. And the same thing happens at Bridge.
2: At the risk of being provocative, are men better at bridge than women?
0: (laughs) You're really trying to get me in trouble. I have actually talked about this a lot in my classes, and I've come out of it unscathed. So let's see if I can do the same here. I find that at the level I teach, there's not necessarily any difference. I find that men tend to be a little more into the card play, and women tend to be a little more into the bidding. They study more, and consequently, they're better at the bidding. So I would say it's a middle level, intermediate level, no difference. At the top level, there's no doubt that the men are better. I mean, nobody's going to debate that. It, what The provocative question would be why, So, but you didn't ask me why, so you're not going to ask me why, right? I would love to know why. Why? Okay, well, why is what could could get you in trouble. But, I mean, this has been written about a lot, and there's like four or five different main reasons that get thrown out there. And I don't know which one it is, so I could just rehash what's in the writing. There's been articles in the magazine. I mean...
3: What's your feeling? Forget the magazines. What's your feeling?
0: Well, my feeling, well, well, let me just say a few of them that might, I mean, because they talk about left brain, right brain, and women are more into art and language, men into math and science, but I don't know that. So I don't know. I mean, maybe, but I don't know. What I think is the biggest problem is that when the men are playing in top tournaments, they're playing against other men and honing their craft and getting better. Whereas most of the top women players have been playing in women's events and not playing against the top players. And it's kind of just self-perpetuating.
3: Yeah. So it's not about gender so much. It's about the level of competition. And when you're honing your skills against a superior player, you get better.
0: Right. That That's what I think is probably the biggest reason. I mean, now, even still, we have women's events and open events. And uh, until the top women are playing constantly against the top men, I don't I don't know that it's going to change. Which
2: would be an argument for maybe getting rid of some women's events, potentially.
0: Well, they talk about it. There's been talk about it.
2: I would like to know, what is something that people might be very surprised to learn about you?
0: Well, I'm a bit of an open book, so there's no big secrets. I mean, I play the piano. Not great, though. Some of the, like Eric Rodwell and some of the bridge players are great. I just hack around. I play golf. But... Yeah, nothing nothing too exciting, no no big secrets.
2: And has there ever been anything just very funny or very strange that has happened while you were playing
0: Bridge? Oh, too many things. I mean, playing with all of these wealthy sponsors, they can be a little eccentric and I certainly wouldn't want to name names or get, you know, a reputation as talking behind people's back. But I I, I guess I could tell you one particular match we played either in in the spin gold, one of the top tournaments. And my teammates and I had finished playing the final quarter. And it was very intense. It was a tough match. It was very close. And we wanted to compare scores and see who had won. This was before ViewGraph and where everyone knew the score. And you'd go with your teammates and you'd score. Okay, win five, lose six. So we got outside to compare scores of our teammates. And they said, nope, we can't compare scores." Our sponsor wants us to compare scores in front of him. He was sitting out the final set. I said, well, where is he? Where is he? Let's see if we want. Uh, we have to go up to his suite. Okay, so we're going up in the elevator. Can you just tell me, did you bid the slam on board 17? No, he, <laughs> right, won't, right. he won't let us talk. He won't let us talk. Okay, so we get to his suite. We go in and he's in the bathroom <laughs> and he won't come out of the bathroom. And we're sitting there. We, oh, just, I was pulling out my hair. Because when you finish a match, you just have to know if you won or not. So finally, he came out of the bathroom, he let us compare scores, and we won by two. But that was the weirdest thing, to have to wait 15 minutes to find out if we won or not.
2: <laughs> I find it hard to wait even just, like, the two minutes for everyone to regroup at the table <laughs> sometimes. And that's not the spin goal. <laughs> yeah, and you want to know after you play.
0: After you play, you want to know how you did, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> okay, I'm not naming. I'm not. Na- don't ask for the name.
2: No, we won't. All right. So, what's the most unusual thing that's ever happened at a tournament?
0: Well, certainly it was away from the bridge table. It was 1984, and I was playing on the Rosencrantz team, uh, George Rosencrantz, whose company invented the uh, birth control pill. And he was our captain. And we were playing bridge in the this- Gold, I guess. It was the Summer Nationals in Washington, D.C. And it was the fourth quarter of an early match. And Edith, his wife, was kibitzing. I was playing with Marty Bergen and Edith was kibitzing. And we won the match and we said goodnight. And the next morning at 7 a.m., my phone rang and it was the FBI. And I was a little upset at being woken up at 7 a.m., but I was kind of wondering why the FBI was calling me. And it turns out that Edith was kidnapped that night in the uh, garage of the hotel. This became big news. It was on the front page of the New York Times. And it was just a very crazy scene at the bridge tournament that morning with with the, you know, all the agents, the FBI and the police. And it was just total craziness for three days. The story, I mean, most people know and they've read about it, that it did have a good outcome that she was recovered unharmed. But boy, was that a crazy three days.
3: But I believe you had to go and play in a sequestered hotel room with security.
0: You, yeah, we did have to. We continued our match. Uh, the you know, the bridge game went on. Of course, George Rosencrantz didn't play. I mean, even I, there's always stories about bridge players. They don't care if there's a fire. When your wife's kidnapped, you don't play. So he sat out which actually made our team stronger because now (laughs) our our teammates were Mechstorth and Rodwell. So it was very weird, though, because they didn't put us in the main area. They put us in a separate area of the hotel to play. And still, we kept having interviews because Marty and and I were the last people to see Edith. So they were really asking us, did you notice anyone else at the table? A bridge player like me, I don't notice anything else at the table. You know, someone could have walked by naked and I wouldn't have noticed.
2: Did they determine... The motive for the kidnapping was it related to his being a wealthy businessman or did it have something to do with bridge?
0: Well, money. They were bridge players who did the kidnapping. I think it was $2 million they were asking for in ransom, and they knew who it was. They knew he had money.
2: But it wasn't necessarily to interfere with your team roster
0: oh no nothing to do with, with with yeah yeah actually you know i can joke about it now but some people did say hey larry that was better for your team did you arrange the kidnapping cuz now you got to play without your sponsor but that was pretty ridiculous i mean that <laughs> people would joke about it that way gosh i guess that's where i was uh
3: that's where i was headed it must have been quite traumatic though were you unnerved
0: yes i was but once the bridge started, I, I was able to focus on the bridge. Actually, it was a good release for me to get away from all that stuff was once the bridge game started, I was able to focus just on the bridge. But in between, those three days were just crazy, as you can imagine. And, you know, poor George. I mean, what what that must have been like for him.
2: Terrible, terrible. Is that the Rosencrantz who, whose double I use? Is that the one and the same?
0: Yes, that's him. He was uh he was a creator, he was a writer, uh, fascinating guy. He died just recently. He was a hundred two. Wow. Uh brilliant man.
2: Sounds like it.
3: So Larry, do you have a favorite convention?
0: <laughs> well, if I wanted to make Marty happy, I'd say Bergen raises. Uh
2: <laughs> You would not be the first to, to to say that.
0: Bergen raises, yeah. I'm not a big convention fan and when I teach bridge. I don't teach a lot of conventions. And I tell everybody that I can tell you what I think my four most important are people always want to hear lists. And so I'm not going to say they're my favorite, but I'll say the these are the four that you have to know. I would put negative doubles. Number one, I think they come up the most. And right behind that, I would say Stamen, Blackwood and Jacoby transfers. So, you know, those are four that probably everyone listening knows. But I, I think If you just gave me those four and said, I can't play any others, I'd be fine. I don't think it would matter much.
3: But there must be one or two that you tend to play. I know you still play occasionally. So which conventions are always on your card?
0: Well, I could tell you the only one I came up with. It's called CRIFS. Okay. C-R-I-F-S. That's an acronym. It's Cohen's Rule and Fourth Seat. Maybe it'll be popular now. Cohen's rule in fourth seat, C-R-I-F-S. And what that means is it goes pass, 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 and you're in fourth seat. And people always ask me, you know, should I open if I have 10 points? Should I open if I have 11 points? And one of the old rules is add your points to your number of spades. Pearson points, yeah. And if it's 15, yeah, right, but I said, never mind all that. Here's what you do. You have 10 or 11 points. You're not sure. What I want you to do is look at your opponents. Look at both of them. And if you're playing against Mechstorff and Rodwell, well, why would you open? Just pass it out. (laughs)
1: Hope you get a
0: decent board. But if you're playing like the two worst players in your duplicate club, someone who's never won a finesse, then open the bidding. You don't want to pass it out against them. Just don't tell your opponents, If they say why'd you open that eleven count? Well, Larry Cohen said to open the bidding when you're playing against a bad player. Please don't tell people that. (laughs) So yeah, that's my favorite convention. But really, I don't, I don't know. I don't really have a favorite convention. What can I say?
3: Well, what about conventions that are a waste of time or that you warn your students
0: off? Just about all of them. I am so adamant about this. I'm extreme that I say, please just focus on the basics. Make sure you know what openers rebit means. What's the difference between a jump shift or a reverse? I could ask a hundred students that and they'd almost all get it wrong, but then they want to learn Labensol and upside down pineapple conventions. And why are they learning all these conventions when they come up? It's not going to matter if you don't know the basics. So I am an extreme anti-convention person. I don't want my students spending time learning conventions. I know some people love it and if they want to do it, fine, but their partner is going to f- forget it. They'll forget it. They won't know if it's on in competition. They won't know if it's on by a past 10. They'll have accidents. It's a thousand times more important to know the basics. Okay, that's the end of my rant. <laughs>
3: <laughs> what is the best bridge advice or tip that you've ever been given?
0: Well, it comes from Bob Hammond and I wish I could say I I can do it, but Ever since I've been in my twenties, I've been aware of the great Bob Hammond and his advice is once the deal is over, it's over and don't think about it during the next deal. And that is the best advice. And I try, I, I have such a, such an inclination to want to think about the deal when it's over because it's just what bridge players do. And I've, had to work so hard my whole career to follow his advice and get on to the next deal. And I'm I'm guilty of not always doing it, but that really is the best advice. But to drill
3: down a little deeper, why is it such good advice?
0: Well, because if you're thinking about the previous deal during the next deal, you're going to screw up the next deal. Uh, not to mention, having a postmortem at the table is also bad. It's bad for partnership morale to be saying, if you I mean, if you talk about the deal at the table, you're you're opening up a a can of worms, because even if you approach it innocently, and if you say, I'm sorry, partner, uh, there's your title again, I'm sorry, partner, I should have switched to a heart. But when you played the tour clubs, I thought blah, blah, blah. And the minute you say that, your partner is going to get their dander up and say, what do you mean you thought my tour clubs meant blah, blah, blah. So like no good can come from talking about it at the table.
2: Right. It's not like you can go back and, and the more you've berated them, the better the score will be. Reverse.
0: (laughs) It's the opposite. They'll play worse the rest of the session. So it's fine as a partnership to discuss the deals after the session with a hand record. But talking about the previous deal at the table, no good can come from that. And certainly thinking about it while you're playing the next deal is really a bad idea.
3: That makes good sense. Larry, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been Wonderful talking with you. We really appreciate your time. Yes, thank you
2: very much.
0: Catherine, thank you. And Jocelyn, thank you. I I love your enthusiasm for the game. And I hope you keep doing these podcasts and have a lot of people listening to them.
2: Thank you so much. And
3: that's the show. Thanks to Larry Cohen and our friends at The Bridge Shop in Australia at bridgeshop.com.au for All Your Bridge Supplies. This program is produced by Catherine Harris. Our theme music was composed by Jocelyn
2: Starts and produced by Daniel Roboy. Send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a voice message. The link is in the show notes. We'd love to hear from you, but be nice or we'll call the director. Until next week, play well.
3: May all your finesses be on side. And remember, as Larry says, once the deal is over, it's over. Thank you, partner. Thank you, partner. Bye. Bye.